Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Nathan, how are you doing this evening? I'm great, Will. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me. Absolutely. Well, Nathan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, I'll try to be as brief as I can. Uh, I mean, you all reached out to me to talk about urbanism, sort of adjacent topics. Um, yeah, like the past year or so, maybe a year and a half, I've been deep diving uh, all topics around urbanism. So stuff from you know, strong towns folks to obviously like the big top of funnel entry entry point to this space has been not just bikes for a lot of people and similar YouTube channels and, and subreddits and, you know, and EMBs on Twitter. There's all sorts of these kind of groups of people that are talking about zoning and parking reforms and placemaking and, and sort of just all the different uh, stuff that revolves around housing and cars and transit and all these, all these different topics. So I kind of stumbled into the discourse, um, I guess, yeah, like a year and a half or so, maybe two years ago, um, started really taking it seriously seriously as in like following it a, a really closely and with a lot more interest the past like year um and really started to get into the the aspect of content creation i guess like the end of august of 2022 so started making some tiktoks um started posting a bit more about it on social media and um and yeah that kind of got me got me some attention in these these circles and that's, I guess, why uh, I, I maybe perhaps landed on your radar. So that's that's great. I, I, I'm curious, how did you first come to urbanism? You've got a pretty eclectic background as well, and uh, urbanism is a topic we're quite passionate about. Uh, like to think about a lot. How did you first come to the topic and get kind of interested in it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been asked this question a bunch, and I, I can't put my finger on like a, there was no single moment. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, just from. Over the years of, of working, I have a marketing background, so I've done a lot of work in like social media management, brand, uh, brand management, and, and all that. So I've, I've run a lot of accounts, and I've spent a lot of time over the years just following different people and discourses online. And I, I, I suppose if I had to put my finger on it, there was probably some mutual people, like followers of mine, that were starting to post about these topics. And I probably started to see it, thought something was interesting, and then eventually kind of worked my way down the rabbit hole, but there's no, like, um, I didn't have like a singular aha moment. I think it was kind of like a slow build until I realized like, Oh wow. There's like an entire sort of, um, series of movements around this topic. And, and prior to that, I honestly had no, no interest, no background. Like I was not, um, like I I didn't go to school for urban planning and I'm not, I was never huge into architecture. Like I didn't have like a, um, a super like natural gateway into this. It was really more, it was more like uh, the discourse kind of came into my periphery. And then I realized it resonated with a lot of ideas that I had already been thinking through. Um, and then I was like, man, this is, it's giving language and, uh, and answers to a lot of questions that, that I had had over the years. 
So Nathan, one question I had that was interested was because you have this background in marketing and like you famously, um, one of the things you're best known for is that you ran the Stakeums Twitter account, I believe. And um, a lot of movements, um, a lot of activist movements or whatever, um, much like a lot of individual creatives, sometimes don't have a great handle on marketing, right? On the entire process of getting your message out, managing your message, being conscious about your message, being conscious about how your message is received, you know, um, my, my own background is I have a degree in architecture and then visualization sciences, but my wife has a master's in communication. So I like to think that anything I've learned about talking basically kind of comes from her. But she kind of opened me this whole world of soft skills that I didn't have as this data head. I was wondering if you could speak to the marketing and movement angle of like, what the, you know, you know it, it seems a little, a lot of, just like a lot of, I'll get to the point, I promise. A lot of creatives and a lot of, Activists often feel that like something as banal and puerile as marketing kind of taints them. But can you speak to like the fact that like we're essentially always trying to communicate about what our messages are and just the, your whole approach to that sort of thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I sympathize with those people. I, I sort of count myself among them, even though probably most of them wouldn't accept me among their ranks, but I'm a, I also have a similar vibe where, you know, when, when people start talking about like, you know, building your brand and how to market yourself and worrying about optics. And there's definitely like a, a sort of ick that I, I get from that to, to a certain degree, because I, I know like when you look at like the stereotype that people get in their head is like the LinkedIn thought leader, like the Gary V type person who's like, you know, kind of, using rhetoric and charisma and their hands and they're trying to like sell you something with with a with a message and, and a kind of a kind of propaganda propagandistic uh, twist behind it so i totally get like cynicism or skepticism toward um you know like trying to like market a message but yeah like, like you said i mean obviously like, this is my day job and, and i do think about it kind of whether i want to or not i have to think about it Constantly, and I, I would like to think that over the years of just kind of like generally observing uh, of various forms of discourse on, on social media and just in life in general, but especially on social media because it all kind of gets magnified on these platforms. I, I've definitely learned sort of like, I, I don't know, like not just tips and tricks, but like how to best navigate it for different types of people. Um, I, I say this thing to my friends, like, I don't know how you know, uh, useful it is in, in certain contexts, but I, I say everything belongs, um, just as a kind of like, you know, dumb catchphrase, just because like, I think there's certain types of people who fit into certain categories of, um, of utility, like within a movement, right? So like you have people who tend to be edgier, more provocative. They also tend to lean younger, um, whether this is like, you know, radical, progressives or just like angsty teens um name your label but you have like the, the kind of group of people who tend to like push the envelope in a provocative way like in, in this movement obviously like the the one that comes to mind is the i'll say f cars sort of side of things like you know big subreddit it exploded a couple years ago um it's kind of like bled into various platforms where these guys talk about you know, all the woes of, of cars and how cars have kind of like ruined a lot of parts of society since, and not by the nature of cars themselves, but just the fact that like 
we've built society sort of um, prioritizing cars above other forms of transportation, like walking or cycling or taking transit. And, um, you know, like, I think for like the average person, especially since like, what, 98% of, of North Americans and probably um, the similar percentages around the world of, of people drive cars. So like, I think a lot of people would see that type of messaging and they'd be really off put and just kind of like, this isn't helping. It's, it might even further radicalize them into like loving their cars in some way. And yet, obviously, like that part of the movement has kind of worked in a sense to galvanize a lot of people who are already, one, bought into it, but also I think on the fence. Like, I do think there's a lot of uh, persuasive power just in being kind of like aggressive and provocative and like mocking things and mocking people. Like, whether or not that's like, that has um, healthy staying power in terms of like something you want to put all your, uh, your uh, eggs in as a basket like that's that's another conversation but like you can't really deny its effectiveness um so i think the question then becomes yeah like as a movement like if you're trying to what what name the social movement whether it's black lives matter whether it's you know yimbies like whatever whatever the whatever the movement is you have to kind of start to consider like as like the leaders of the movement or as like the the various groups that are kind of you know, advocating for, you know, what type of messaging are you willing to get behind um, to really to, to get your ideas through to the right people that you need to persuade, whether that's local politicians, whether that's legislators, whether that's other various uh, stakeholders that may, that might be like business owners locally, it might be, um, you know, the mayor, it might be um, investors, it might, it might just be your neighbors that are, you know, voting or showing up at city council meetings. Um, and I think like, when you think, when you take a step back and think about it in those terms, you have to kind of like compartmentalize what kind of messaging is the most effective, both broadly and in these sort of um, segmented uh, demographics. So I think there is a place for the people, like the F cars people of the world, who are more radical and they push more provocative messaging. But obviously, like I, I think, if you want to win the most amount of people over in a broad sort of political sense. You do have to moderate your uh, your language, and you have to think through um, just how you frame things. Like you have to think optically. Like you know, like who who am I trying to reach, and who am I potentially off putting by phrasing it this way? Um, I even I even was thinking about this just last week. With uh, I don't know when this podcast episode is going to come out, but I was thinking about it with this uh, fifteen minute cities conspiracy theory going viral, where every, everybody's starting to like you know kind of. Uh, it's it's like a it's like a pendulum swing swing like any other culture war where like it starts i, I want to say it started a couple months ago um in, in some kind of like really obscure circles and then jordan peterson ended up tweeting out something about it and that kind of brought it into more uh not mainstream but kind of like online popular circles and then eventually it snowballed to the point where like these talking points were getting repeated and getting news coverage. And then a movement broke out where people were like protesting the concept of 15 minute cities. And all along the way, like I, I'll, I'll be the first to say, like, I'm guilty. Like I, I, I've made fun of people who would like fall for that type of thing. We're not even fall for it, but like, you know, um, get swept up in the culture war about it. And when this whole thing started taking off the past like week or so, um, some of my first instincts were just to kind of be like, well, I do not understand this. And I think, um, you know, there's always like a step, like I always try to think in hindsight, like, man, like I, I wish, 
even in some of the tweets that I've posted, I'm like, I wish I was a little bit more tactful about like how I frame some of this stuff. Cause like I've studied um, conspiracy theories, like not, obviously I'm not a researcher, like I've never done papers on them, but I've read a lot of the literature out there on like the psychology of conspiracy theories and how they form, how these groups have um, kind of like evolved over the decades. And the, the groups that are kind of perpetuating this particular one, it's, it's not really any different than a lot of the ones in previous decades around like sort of global cabal plots and this new world order or deep state, whatever you want to call it, is like kind of pull, like, you know, pulling the strings behind the scene, trying to enact whether it's population control or like, you know, huddling people into pods or like, you know, sur- mass surveillance and so on. And, um, and I know that the, like in all of that, there's always some grain of truth or at least grain of, um, of, of reason to be skeptical. Like there's people that are genuinely worried about being like, you know, under some form of surveillance, whether it's traffic cameras or, you know, having to kind of like track how many times they leave a neighborhood if they're, if they're trying to drive through it. Um, these are things that like, you know, they're not necessarily like a, a QAnon level conspiracy theory. Like they're just kind of just genuine, uh, concerns that some citizens have. So I know there's like a tendency even in me to kind of like want to lump all those people together and be like, these people are nuts. Um, but I also know that that's not entirely helpful for trying to, to reach the mass, the, the most amount of people. So long winded answer, but I think, you know, there's, there's definitely different um optical approaches to to rhetoric and 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 how you message stuff around these topics because obviously there's there's the type of messaging that's going to potentially reach people who are are not a fan or not not aware of the the issue that you're presenting and there's people who are on the fence about it and there's people who are already bought into it or or at least like mostly bought into it and they just need to kind of be activated or galvanized in some way so so yeah it's it's a it's a big topic, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear like, I don't know if either of you have thoughts on it, but that's a, uh, you know, definitely something I think a lot about. Yeah. Nathan, I, I'm curious, you know, going off of that, how would you rate, you know, current Yimby messaging? You know, I, I tend to think Yimby is probably not a great term just because, you know, compared to something like, you know, nobody's uh, against life or against choice. So those are probably pretty good monikers or branding for each of those sides of the movement. But pro Yimby, I have to explain what that is to people. So that seems to be kind of not as good or as charismatic as some of them. How would you rate uh, Yimby messaging at this point and how can we perhaps improve that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough though too because you have to. I always have to remind um, my friends this we talk about, and it's like topics around urbanism and housing and all of this. While the issue or the issues have become a bit more limelighted in the past couple of years, they're still so um, obscure comparatively to like abortion or gun rights or like some of these other like issues that are way more frequented in the uh, the cultural zeitgeist. So I think um, there, there's a little bit of like that having to explain what it is or what it means, almost no matter what you say, like even people who are like, I'm pro housing. It's like, well, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like right. there's tons of people who say like, oh, I'm, I'm for building housing. But then as soon as you ask them like two or three questions, it falls apart. And they're like, actually, not. I'm actually not super for uh, pro housing. Um, so I think, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, if it's out of 10, maybe I'd give it like a like a six or a seven maybe it's it's tough to say though too because like it's such a decentralized movement like there's so many um different sub it's sort of like black lives matter like there's a bunch of sub yimby groups in different cities and there's different organizations and i think 
it kind of has this um this this issue where the messaging was tainted from the beginning sort of because of the origins having a bit more of a libertarian bend in like the san francisco area and i think a lot of people who are left of center or far left have like an innate skepticism toward the, the, the those origins and then just some of like the the broader talking points that feel very deregulatory which they are and i always stress to people you know like deregulation or regulation on their own are not necessarily like left or right principles like they might sound that way on on face value because like that's just how sort of mainstream politics has has framed them since like reagan but you know obviously there's a lot more um complication around like what you consider worth deregulating or what you consider that that needs more regulation and i think just the optics of that um, has obviously caused a lot of issues where YIMBYs are, are, are struggling to kind of um, coalesce parts of the left um, of, the, of the political spectrum to, to get behind them. Because I think, I think there's just people on the left uh, that are, they, they don't want to associate with that. And they're, they're kind of worried, I think. There's this kind of, um, like, what, what's her, uh, that, that author, uh, Jane Mayer, who wrote the book Dark Money. There's this kind of, like, um, almost... I don't want to say conspiratorial, but it's kind of semi-conspiratorial sense of like, you know, there's some dark money behind this, the behind the scenes influencing everything. Cause like, obviously there is in real, you know, in reality, there is billionaire funded think tanks. There are billionaire funded projects all the time. So that's why I want to say it's like a conspiracy, but I think that, that, that genuine skepticism toward power often also like devolves into a little bit of paranoia and a little bit of lack of, um, ability to kind of like work around just the fact that yeah like tons of really helpful movements and helpful groups are often funded by organizations or billionaires that you might not agree with on everything that's just kind of part of our politics that we all have to to grapple with so i so i don't know i I think you know i think a lot of the messaging is good but i also think you know the fact that so much of the envy movements um uh sort of time in the in the in the news or in like the, the mainstream, not even mainstream, but I guess the, again, the online mainstream discourse has been centered around Twitter and Twitter has a very uh, toxic culture of just kind of dogpiling and, and clap backing and all this kind of like, you know, it's really just all about how you can dunk on people or, or like, and, and, I, and I think, you know, YIMBYs aren't immune to that. I mean, we've all, we've all seen groups of YIMBYs that kind of like jump on a uh, like a, an opponent's tweet with a bunch of replies and and I, I would say I mean I'm, I'm maybe I'm a little biased because I agree with these folks on on most things I would say that as far as groups are concerned like I, any ideologically based group I would say that YIMBYs on average tend to um, handle those kind of pylons in a more respectful way than almost any group that I can think of that's politically charged like I think. There's a lot of political groups who, like, when you see them in those replies, like if a like if a big um, left Twitter account, like a socialist or communist account, quote tweets like a political opponent. You look at the replies; it's often not very. Um, there's not often like a lot of generative discourse. It's usually just like "f off," "what the f is this," you know, like that's like it's this. It's it's just a lot of people that are pissed essentially. Whereas, like, I do see a genuine effort from a lot of Yimbies in replies to that type of stuff trying to like explain their positions in a way but again like with any kind of discourse like if if, if i'm like an, if i'm the political opponent and i've got 10 people in my replies 
that are, you know, say, sounding reasonable and like kind of thoughtful about their, their criticism. But then there's like one or two people who are saying like, F you, like you suck, log off. Those are the ones I'm going to remember. So that's kind of like a, you know, an issue that any group grapples with. But I think EMBs have, um, have, have had to kind of deal with the baggage of a lot of that the past couple of years. So, you know, speaking of Twitter, right, it's very easy for people to get caught up in thinking that Twitter is the world and thinking that only I can defeat my opponents on Twitter, you know, will win. And it's just like, well, that's quite the booby prize. Um, <laughs> you know, to wit, you have been quite successful on TikTok. And can you talk a little bit about the dynamic there and how you manage, you know, your communications, like not just in the abstract, but just you personally, what you've been doing on TikTok and the lessons you've learned from that medium? Yeah, I mean, I... I <laughs> I want to say I fell in love with TikTok because obviously, like, you know, there's a lot of issues on TikTok and surrounding the sort of uh, corporate uh, culture of TikTok. But I, I love the um, the community, at least on TikTok. I right away, um, the first few videos I published just in like the comment sections and the messages I was getting and the people I was interacting with, I felt uh, a lot just more of like a healthy again, a generative discourse from people, even the people that weren't sure or disagreed with the stuff that I was posting. Um, it, it just, generally speaking, like not, again, not to say we've all seen terrible TikTok comment sections similar to any other platform, but on average, I, I was getting a lot of uh, just interesting folks that I was reaching. And I think there's something to that. Um, I, I think that, like you said, Twitter is like this kind of... Um, it's been jokingly referred to as the health site or like a cesspool. Like it's, 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 it, it kind of brings out the worst in a lot of people. Um, just, I think because of the, the sort of open room nature of how the platform operates where like if I tweet something and I have X amount of followers and I'm tweeting it for my followers. It's very easy for that tweet to get like retweeted or liked enough where it's landing in a community that's like way outside of my audience. And at which point people are reading into it without context of who I am and, and potentially like, you know, it's like the, the incentivization is there to just like snipe people in those, in those instances. So not again, not to say that that doesn't exist at all on TikTok, but I think there's less of it. Um, I found that I, I think just p- even as purely based on, the, the the physical like the video of it all i mean like us in this like room like we're, we're talking in video and i think having you know some level of, of of voice and face communication like body language i mean that's not i know that's not like a novel observation like people say that all the time like more context you know more humanity uh that type of thing and i think that really was encouraging for me because obviously like I'm prior to that, like I'm not I'm not a YouTuber. I don't have a background of videos. This was kind of my first um, venture into kind of putting that side of myself on social media. And I, I definitely felt like it was a much more just positive uh, outlet for me in terms of like community building, in terms of communicating a message, because now people are able to see, you know, what might exist in a, you know, 280 character tweet is now being fleshed out in like a two or a three minute long video where I'm like able to visually explain the thoughts behind that stuff. And I think, I don't know, like, again, it's not perfect. Even YouTube essays that are an hour long, you can't always fit everything you want to say, but I I definitely have felt since I started on it that, you know, there's, there's a lot more just opportunity to provide that kind of human based context. And there's 
way less likelihood that you're going to get people sniping you out of that context. As long as you're careful. Like if you're, if you're on TikTok doing 10 second or 20 second videos and you're just kind of like doing it tweet style, obviously there's more room for it. But if you're being thoughtful and trying to flesh out an idea, um, obviously there's less room than to, you know, to jump on and make a bunch of assumptions about, about somebody's intentions. Interesting. So one thing kind of down back to earlier in the conversation, talking about movements and stuff, a big part of a movement is that it's not like you're playing some godlike RTS game where you're like, okay, here's this subreddit and I'll send them over there to do this. Meanwhile, I have these legions on Twitter and TikTok. It's like no one's necessarily directing these things, you know, shadowy billionaires aside, like, <laughs> you know, so like you might join a movement and there might be a faction out there just doing something and you have no control over that. Right. And um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts from the individual level of like when you come into a movement and like you want to make a statement for yourself and kind of steer things in a direction, be an example to other people. Like, how do you practically do that when you functionally have no control over what everyone else is doing and presenting to the world what they should expect and associate when they cut when they come across you for the first time because you're associated with this movement. That's a that's a fantastic question and and one that I I think about all the time because yeah I mean like just cut, just from like a a temperamental standpoint I've I've always been kind of a anti group I I don't I don't know I guess like contrarian rebellion like I, it's just kind of baked into my personality from a really young age like since the time I was you know 12 13 years old when I've always been kind of just like aggressively in the face of whatever group that I'm a part of to the point where you know I, I was really an annoying kid to a lot of people <laughs> so something I've had to to work on in my adult years to kind of like not reflexively um avoid or start conflict within people that I agree with because I'm the type of person who like if I'm in a if I'm at a party with a bunch of friends and we all agree on a topic and we're all just kind of like circle jerking each other on it. I'm going to get bored or annoyed pretty quick and try to like stir up drama and just, you know, like to, like to play devil's advocate and all that. Like I'm, I'm in a lot of ways, like growing up, I was that meme of like the, you know, the guy who's just, again, and it wasn't something that I ever, it was never like an intellectualized thing. Like I think for some people, like the meme tends to center around, um, like philosophy nerds, like certain people who they do it as like an exercise to kind of be like, whatever. It never felt like that to me. It was just kind of like, this is just a personality thing. I just get annoyed by everybody who thinks the same or acts the same in a situation. So I think, and I think there's, I think the internet is full of people like that. Like, I think whether a lot of us want to admit it or not, I think a lot of people on social media, they see themselves as like these hyper individualistic, um, different identities of, of people who are like, you know, impossible to categorize. And that's why they try and all these different qualifiers to like label themselves to kind of like create some sense of like, you know, this is my niche essentially. Um, but I think it, on the flip side, obviously like the, on social media, like there, there's a, um, a, a propensity then like to find your people. And like, we all do it, whether we try to or not, like we, like that was the kind of, that was the kind of inside joke or which became like a, a mass criticism of that, that sort of social movement, which was referred to as the, the intellectual dark web a few years ago, where it was like all these, these quote unquote heterodox kind of contrarian guys from Joe Rogan to Jordan Peterson to 
Ben Shapiro or whoever, and they're all kind of like buddies and they're all kind of like getting together saying, yeah, like we're against the establishment. You know, we're we're not a group. We don't do group think type of thing. But then in that, they kind of became a group in some ways, like they all kind of shared the, the similar um, sort of populist uh, counter mainstream narrative approach to things, which is how they related to each other. I think that's that's kind of just like inevitably what happens, like wherever we fall um, in life and, and in, in online ecosystems. And I think it's similar to, to the urbanist movement or the indie movement or to any of these sort of like spaces on, on social media, because I think you get a lot of people who kind of organically come into it, whether it's from a channel like Not Just Bikes or it's from a subreddit or it's from um, like NumTots on Facebook and they kind of, they get a window in and they, they're, they're a person and they're bringing their personal beliefs and biases into this group. And then inevitably the group starts to kind of like interact with them and shape how they think about things. And they, they have to kind of like make those decisions for themselves. Like, do I fit in here? Like, are these, are these my people? Um, and, I, and I think that's, it's a difficult thing for, for anyone to grapple with. I think some people obviously are, are more um, depending on like where, what their personal uh, temperament is like and what their history is like. I think some people are looking for that group, like they're looking for community, they're looking for belonging. So they're like, they're willing to kind of toss aside any um, beliefs or biases they may have to kind of just fit in to a group. But then there's uh, other people like me who, you know, kind of come in and they're innately skeptical of of the group's message. And they, they have a harder time, I think, kind of determining, like, is are these my people? Like, do I do I stand behind these ideas? And especially when you when you start to talk about labels, like Yimby is a label. Like there's people who put Yimby in their bio. There's people who put Urbanist in their bio. And there's other people who don't do that, but they probably agree with a lot of the ideas like there's. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the writer Freddie DeBoer, who's like a kind of popular uh, cultural critic in online in online spaces, and he's like yeah, he's stirred the pot lately. Yeah, yeah, he has been like, and he's he's interesting because like he's not active on these platforms, and yet he definitely stalks them. Like he doesn't have a presence there, but he kind of like writes about them in a way. So it's 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 tricky to kind of know. The depth of his insight, if that makes sense, because like we're not really seeing his firsthand experience of engaging with the discourse. But he's somebody who I know has been critical of the MB movement the past year, the past couple of years, perhaps. And um, and I think he he said in his blog that like he agrees with most, if not all, of the sort of principled ideas behind the movement. But there's all these sort of things that are preventing him from um, sort of hitching his wagon. To the label in a way so i think it's it's interesting i think everybody has to kind of figure out what they're comfortable with like i honestly there's nowhere i don't think you can find any statement of mine on a podcast or on twitter where i've said i'm a yimby like i've never really ascribed that label to myself um i've stood up for yimby ideas i've defended um yimbies in certain circumstances so i think to a certain audience who is perhaps already predispositioned to to hate Yimbies, I think they would just categorize me all the same as one. Like, I don't think it really matters to, to a person like that, but just, just personally for me, yeah, I don't really see it that way. I'm like, yeah, I agree with these folks on, on most or, or, or all things, but as any group, the group is not necessarily um, uh, indicative of the beliefs behind that group. So like, there's, there's a sort of separation there that I think everybody has to, 
to grapple with and, and, and determine what they're comfortable uh, labeling themselves. Yeah, so uh, there's a follow-up question there, which is that I think, and this is an important thing, is that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people's reservations about joining a group is not just like the intellectual policies, but also sort of the aesthetics, the vibes, and and who's in the room, right? You know, th there's this whole cliche that like everything is tribalism and signaling, but to a certain extent, it is at least a little bit. And, um, you know, it's important for a movement to have good friends and to have good enemies in a certain sense in terms of who it's going to attract. Right. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk to that aspect a little bit where, for instance, like, let me show you a little bit where I'm coming from. Clearly, you're betraying through everything you're saying that you probably come from um, a, a fairly deep blue area. Right. Uh, no, I'm actually in a purple area. Purple here. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah because well, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm. A, I'll be a moderate, enlightened, filthy centrist to my my bitter end. But I'm, <laughs> I'm in deep red Texas, right? Okay. And so my background is always like, like my test of how far like a conservative talking point has gone is like, do I hear it from my dad when I go visit? Mm. You know what I mean? Right. And so like I'm wondering when I'm going to hear 15 minutes at his cities yep, from him. It's trickling down, right? <laughs> right. But I understand. I think a lot better than a lot of my deep blue friends where some conservative backlash to these ideas come from, even if I don't consider myself hyper right wing, um, just because, I mean, I live among them, right? I hear from them every day. And so it's really interesting to me listening to you talk about like the pushback Yimbyism gets from the left, because I see some of the pushback it gets from the right. Mm. But I also see this really crazy phenomenon where the exact same policy can be framed two different ways. And either the left or the right will either fall in love with it or hate it on instinct entirely based on how it's framed because of like who's supporting it, who's pushing it. You know, it, it almost has more to do with, with, with what it's totemic value or something mm -hmm. rather than like the actual substance of the policy. And there's a part of you that wants to be like, and that's why everyone's dumb, but me, but there's another part that's like, well, there's probably some deep, very reasonable insight here, you know, about how humans work, including myself, if I'm being perfectly honest. Anyway, I was wondering what your whole take on that angle of it no, is. No, I'm totally with it. I uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago for um for it's a small online magazine called Arc Digital, um, and then I republished it on my my blog because they they put it behind a paywall. But it's called like I think it's called defining the differences between leftists and liberals or liberals and leftists. And um and I, I go through in that article because I was trying to kind of parse out you know like what what does define the differences between groups like this? And in doing so, I, I made the same observation you just laid out, which is that, you know, there's the sort of policy differences between these groups where, you know, you have people who on, on the, the, the left, quote unquote, which I would you know deem either far left on the social democratic end or socialist or communist and so on. And then on the liberal side, you kind of have like liberal, progressive, center left um, types and I, I was saying, you know, like there's the policy differences where like a far left person might say they want just universal programs for all, they, they, you know, universal healthcare, universal college and so on. Whereas like a center left person might say they want like more means tested programs in, in some way where it's like, you know, public option healthcare, you know, that you can opt into it or, and just with some more stipulations, essentially. And um, so that was like the policy side of it. Then I broke out the same thing you said, where I called it ethos, which is just vibes, essentially, which is, I think is the definitely the more um, potent uh, way we measure 
political differences between people. Because I think, again, like, you know, I could say anybody can say anything uh, on social media or otherwise. Like, I could say to you right now that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bleeding heart communist. But I think for any communist listening to me talk right now, I'm not really giving off the vibes of a communist. So I think like, even if I were to tell you like, oh, I'm, I'm all in, like, you know, like seize the means of production, stateless society. That's what we got to work toward. Nothing I'm really saying is, um, I think speaking to that crowd per se, at least, at least most communists that I'm, that I know of. Uh, and I think that's kind of how we interpret a lot of, um, of our political leanings, like just implicitly, like no matter what people say, like this is the whole like original criticism of uh, of people like Dave Rubin online, which is that Dave Rubin for years kind of played this whole card of like framing himself like I'm a classical liberal, and yet every guest, every prominent guest at least that he had on his show um, for years was either conservative or center right, and even the center left people he talked to it was always criticizing the left. So then it kind of like created this audience of, of right-leaning or right-wing people to the point where, I mean, obviously now he's just a Republican. He identifies as such. Like he worked for the Blazer or one of those organizations. But in either case, like that, that, it never mattered what he labeled himself because there was people on both ends, people that supported him and people that hated him that saw him a certain way because of how he presented himself. And I think that's just kind of like, part of um all of our politics uh no matter no matter what how we want to how we want to deal with it um and then the second part to your question was which uh shoot i'm, I'm losing my train of thought the the um crap were you talking about the yimbies doing the same policy presented in two different frames yes, gets... thank you thank you yeah uh, apologies for for losing my train of thought there um yeah and i think that that phenomenon it's like it's so I mean, it sucks because like there's there's no there's no um, party who's free of guilt, right? I mean, like we all do that. Like it's it really is um, a sort of testament to, like you said, some people call it tribalism. Just any kind of groupthink. Like when when we see a there's there's certain people. I think I think a great example of this actually that I, at least again I spend a lot of time on Twitter, so I don't know how much of your audience is on Twitter or cares about it, but like there the, the a, a main character of Twitter that that tends to be at the center of a lot of these discourses is someone like Matthew Iglesias, oh, yeah. um, who's just like, you know, a, a sort of center-left lib who has some sort of center-right um, tendencies, or at least like uh, the way he presents himself, where he appeals as a moderate, he kind of appeals to both ends of the spectrum. So you've got, you know, most like, if I were to like show Matt, Iglesias is writing to like any of my Republican relatives or friends, they would never think this guy's right wing. Um, but at the same time, like if I showed him to any of my socialist friends, none of them would think he's on the left. Oh, he's, he's, a, he's a right wing shill. Yeah, right? exactly. So like you got a guy like this who um, who kind of like he, he's created this like lightning rod of discourse around himself where if he says something, I think and I think he because he is one of the more prominent um voices in media who stands behind a lot of the Yimby uh, ideas or the urbanist ideas. I think reflexively, there's a lot of people on the left in particular who, um, who or then become skeptical and turned off to those ideas because it's, it's just strictly because 
that guy is is representing them and saying these are good ideas. So that's kind of a it's definitely an issue. And I, I don't really know. There's not really any easy way to overcome that other than I guess looking for the best faith actors you can find in politics and trying to like both publicly and privately persuade them of these ideas on their merits and then hoping that you know they those people can act as conduits to kind of pull some of their followers. Like I think AOC was a great example of this. Um I don't know how where she's at currently with it, but I know that maybe with, perhaps like a year ago she started um, posting uh, some kind of memos or, or, or tweets about housing and how we need to build more housing and all this stuff. And that kind of created this kind of sense of like, oh, my gosh, like AOC's behind these ideas. And it, 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 there was a lot of power to that, at least on the left side of the spectrum. I don't, I don't know where she stands on it now, but I think, you know, if you can convince different politicians in different camps, whether it's left, center or right, um, that an idea is good. That's how you're going to get, you know, reach those people. Because someone like me, I mean, I pull it again, it's not like this matters to anybody who perceives me otherwise, but I consider myself uh, a social Democrat. I mean, like, I guess either center left or far left, depending on, on how you perceive that. But um, somebody like me, like, I'm not going to have a ton of sway to a Republican. Like, I can try. Like, I, I do try. I have a lot of Republican friends and family. I grew up in a really conservative community. So, like, I can speak to these people in a way that, you know, it isn't necessarily going to turn them off to what I'm saying right away. Like, I don't talk to them like they're idiots, like a lot of my more uh, deep blue state or area friends do. But even even so, the ones who know me and they know, like, my political affiliations, it's, it's already, the conversation's already tainted because, like, they know whatever I'm saying is kind of coming from that ideological background. So there's already... Before I've even said anything, there's a suspicion of like, you know, he's he defends the establishment or he wants more government in our lives. Like it's all kind of like boiled up right. there, you know, and, and granted, you know, I don't mean to completely broad, broad stroke. it. I mean, obviously, there's more moderate right leaning people just as there are more moderate left leaning. No, people no. Who, but, I, but yeah, you but get I, what I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. Right. But, you know, it's like I come from a more conservative. You, you know, I, I mean. I don't know how conservative your um, childhood area was like, but, you know, I grew up in 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 Texas and in places where, you know, just right wing was just the default. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, and I'm probably to I'm probably to your right. Um, and it's just really interesting to me just like this whole framing. Like I'll give you a practical example. Right. You know, I'm a Georgist. You know, we're we're all into the land value taxes and stuff. It would solve and what's, this. In, what's interesting <laughs> is we say the word land value tax to a conservative and they freak out because they imagine that you're proposing an additional tax. Right. Took exactly. me a while to figure out. And it's like, whereas what I'm actually proposing. So what I've started saying now is because Texas has a high property tax already. I start saying universal building exemption is my policy. I want to remove taxes on buildings, which would be the equivalent of having a modest land value tax. Mm -hmm. And instantly people are like, oh, yeah. I like exemptions. You want to reduce taxes? That sounds great. And it's it's been interesting historically for Georgism as a movement, um, at least because it's had those two angles. You know, it, it never fit well in the political spectrum. So it always had like different frames you could approach it with of either like, you know, go full into, you know, you could talk about how you wanted to, you know, collect land into the public domain or you right. could talk about how you wanted to reduce taxes on yeah, income and tariffs angles. yeah right right but the frame you pick will instantly 
bring in all this baggage that your audience is like, you know, just based off of even so much as one word. And I was just wondering, like, if you have any practical examples in or out of activism, maybe just from like marketing, you know, just some product, whether you had any practical experience with that kind of phenomenon where you realize that just a choice of frame or wording or something dumb like that was sending the wrong message and it perplexed you for a while, but then you figured out what it was and you pivoted. Oh, there's so many. I, I don't know if I can think of a top off the top of my head, but it happens all the time. I mean, one of the ones I guess that just came to mind would be uh, single family zoning, which is like, mm just that term, which is the tactical term um, to mean that an area is zoned only to, to build or house single family homes. So you can't build other forms of housing, whether it's duplexes to townhouses to mid rises, you can only build a single family home in an area that is single family zoned. But the way it's framed, uh, most people who hear that have any inclination toward housing, you know, whether they own a house or, or they're, they have some kind of interest around property, they hear that, you know, if you want to abolish or ban or end single family zoning, that that means people aren't going to be able to live or build in, in single family homes. And which is the which is the opposite <laughs> of the case, because right now everything else is banned. And exactly. if you were to remove the zoning, you could build whatever you want. Yeah. So there's which, like a freedom angle there. You know, it's like you can you can push the freedom angle. It's like, well, why don't people have the freedom to build this? But I've, I've noticed quickly, like, I mean, this is, I guess, along the vein of, of everything we're talking about here, where pe most people, partisan or otherwise, do not care about like the the sort of like freedom or regulatory aspects of this messaging if they're already bought into um, a, a way something is. So like, yeah. there's people I know who are like deep, deep conservatives who I've talked to, especially family members about this about zoning, single family zoning in particular. Where I'm like, you know, like it's it's really just all about like exactly what we just said, giving people the freedom. Like if they if they own the property, like they should legally be allowed to build a duplex if they would like, and should not be constrained by like by regulation to to have to build a single family home or have to build a certain uh, square foot house or have to build uh, a certain amount of parking. Like these are things that we shouldn't be legally forcing people to do, and. No matter how, you know, like we're talking about, no matter how uh, you try to frame it in one direction or the other to appeal to a right-leaning or a left-leaning person, if you're somebody who owns property, particularly a single-family house in a suburb, they're just, they don't, they, they don't, they don't want it. They're going to hear that and they're going to say, I don't want somebody in a duplex next to me. I don't want somebody in townhouses next to me. I don't want apartments next to me. Like they just, they reflexively, you know, just it, it doesn't matter how pro-freedom they are or whatever. Like there's a certain person, a lot of people I've talked to, especially, you know, this is the sort of NIMBY aura where it just like, it literally does not matter if you present an argument with qualitative or quantitative data to show them like, hey, this will increase economic productivity. This will decrease traffic or like you'll just have more neighbors and that'll result in, in, in you know, better more, more customers for businesses, more options for businesses. Like a lot of people just don't care. Again, granted, I don't want to pose this like it's not worth trying. I do think it's worth trying to reach folks because there are people on all across the political spectrum that you can reach with that that kind of messaging when you're when you're careful about it. But then there's other ones who you can frame it as carefully as you want. <laughs> you're just not gonna get right. you're not gonna get anywhere. So it's um it's tricky. And and that kind of that kind of goes kind of pick your battles. Yeah, and it's not even just pick your battles as much as it is, I think, people 
and I'm speaking as much to my to, to your audience as I am to myself uh, with this. But like, I think most of us need to get better at knowing where our energy is best spent. And I think mm. a lot of people they just get in these patterns, whether they're posting online, like whether they're whether they're like a public figure or they're an anonymous account. And they get in this habit of like, if I'm replying or I'm tweeting or I'm commenting on this Facebook or next door group, I'm kind of like participating in society and I'm doing activism or they're, they're, they feel some kind of purpose from that. And like the reality is it's just noise for most people. Right. Like it's not, you're not changing people's minds. You're not like furthering the discourse. Like you're really just like in a lot of selfish ways, just kind of like getting your thoughts out there because you feel strongly about something and it kind of just ends there. Like most people, most people aren't. And, and again, I'm speaking as much to, to the audience as myself. Like I work in marketing and I think about messaging all the time and I'm still not great at it. Like there's tons of times, like I just mentioned the 15 minute cities thing, like tons and tons of times where I post things or say things and I regret it. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have framed this differently. And I think like for a lot of people, similar to the how I mentioned the F cars movement sort of galvanizes a certain audience. This is this has been a, a sort of like a widely known um, phenomena in like Washington, D.C. politics, where a lot of um, policymakers and campaign directors and, and, and people who are on the ground doing door knocking, they know like the strategy to win an election isn't to like spend all of your time and resources trying to convince the other side. It's to get your side to care. Right. I mean, like that's the that's the name of the game. Like you're not going to like for every one person's mind you change who's like on the other end of the political spectrum, you could activate 50 people who already agree with you. And all they needed is somebody like you to like explain the concept or like encourage them to get more involved in whatever they're passionate about. And I think like that kind of is, is a way that I think we have to kind of think about reframing a lot of our um our politics like and just and i say politics broadly around culture and like and and, polit- and policy engagement and just how, how how we think about issues because i think um you know like there's so much time that just gets wasted and i'm i'm in uh, some of these group chats like i've been in group chats for years on twitter especially or discord servers where you know people just like argue and argue and argue or they like they they target certain public figures or or channels and it's like let's like you know rile up this group and it's like you know if you're doing it for entertainment and you're doing it because you enjoy it and these are your friends and this is just a way for you to blow off steam and all that that's great like i'm not you know i do the same thing like i'm not coming down on anybody for that but if if you're somebody who's like actually interested in trying to change things you're trying to change minds and you have a genuine internal sense of like you know what i'm doing should matter you really need to like take a step back um, regularly, like maybe not every day, but like a couple times a week and just kind of recalibrate and just like think about like, why am I doing the thing I'm doing? Why am I posting this? Why am I replying to this person? Why am I wording this the way I'm wording it? And just like think about your goals within within that context, because otherwise we're all just kind of, you know, posting a lot of noise and we're not being super persuasive or effective with whatever message we're trying to to get out there, you know? I think one of the most times I was made most clear to me was one time I was arguing with some kind of hard case and he dropped this line where he was like, 
It, it was one of the most bad faith arguments I've ever had with someone who just absolutely refuses to be convinced. You get him to concede a point, and then he admits that he has 99 more coming right up. Right. And, you know, anyway, <laughs> it's just it's just endless, right? And then at the end, he just dropped. It's like, I don't understand why nobody is trying to convince me. And I'm like, I'm right here, dude. And he's like... I should be your top priority to convince because if you could convince me, then everyone like right. had, had a real enormous like sense of their own importance too. And I realized like you are the last person I should be trying to convince because you take so much energy and it's never going to happen. And it's clear you don't even care. You're just here to fight. And, and you like, know, yeah. And those people like they'll pick out the one thing you say that is like slightly wrong or slightly off color. Um, or, or they'll just seek out someone. If, if it's not you, they'll seek out a person who does that. Like I mentioned, like the MB reply sections. I mean, it's just classic. Like it's, it's classic partisanship where I don't know how you combat it, but if you've got a thread of people that are criticizing somebody's post and 10 of them are making good faith, thoughtful arguments, like they might not be nice because obviously they're criticizing you. So like, they're not going to be super like gentle about it, but like they're, they're actually putting an argument forward in a, in a way that took them time and effort to do. But then there's one or two people in the replies that are just saying, like, F off, loser, like, you suck, whatever. It's it's so many people who act in bad faith. They pick out those, like, they call it nut picking, right? It's like you pick out right. the craziest or the worst person. Then you think, then you say, ah, like, this is indicative of the entire movement or the entire group that I'm arguing with. And it's, it's so frustrating when when you, like you said, if you take the time to like craft a thoughtful response to someone and then they do that to you because you're like, man, like there's there's only so much time in the day. And if you're spending like even if it's just five minutes or 15 minutes or an hour going back and forth with somebody on this, and then it's like very apparent that they're in it for the wrong reasons or they're just like completely looking for a way out. It's like, man, like, what are we even doing here? Like, I, I genuinely, it makes me feel crazy sometimes. So I'm like, man, I know I've, I've made a lot of online friends and a lot of them are um, like people I've met in real life then. And a lot of, a lot of them are just like normal or as, as normal as you can be. I mean, you know, I, I say normal in, in quotes, but like, you know, there's a lot of great people that are just online, but then there's a lot of online people who are not well and like they're kind of using online as a, as a way of... Uh, of masking or kind of like uh, venting their internal struggles. And yeah, that becomes very apparent, especially when you're arguing with somebody you don't know very well. And it's like, you could be anybody, like even if it's a public person, it's like, man, I have no idea what kind of day you're having or, or, you know, what your history is. Like, you just don't know. And then before you know, you've wasted a bunch of time and it's like, man, what are we, what are we doing here? It sucks. One thing to close this out, just last question here, is for a budding movement that's trying to help itself be understood by the world and try to break itself, break out there, get its message out, change the world, you know, do good, um, and also not just drown in the pointlessness of the internet, what is your advice, you know, practically speaking? I mean, I would just tell people to follow their passions. I mean, like like I said earlier, I mean, I, I have this kind of corny, not like saying that's not even really a saying, but when, when we when I talk to this uh, with friends, like I say, everything belongs. Like I think any movement needs a diversity of tactics. And, and obviously when I say everything belongs, I don't mean, you know, bomb, like <laughs> bomb your opponents or whatever. Like I'm not, I'm not advocating for, for extremism, but I think that there's different approaches that work for different people. Like when I think about 
the person that I was 10, 15 years ago as an angsty teenager, the the what would what I would have considered persuasive at that time in my life is no longer what I consider persuasive today. Like there are just different forms, you know, like people there's people, especially young men, I would say, but you know, young people in general who are attracted to like power and authority and like people, people like Ben Shapiro who are super confident and they talk fast and they just they're owning you. Like that's that's a very appealing uh rhetorical style for young people. But then there's like you know, middle-aged uh, people who are obsessed with the the, the soft whisper, uh, you know, everything is groovy, NPR-style voice, you know? Like, there's there's different different uh, genres, different styles. Like, I, I don't know. Like, there's... I follow so much content across platforms, and, like, I, I, I always try to, to consume people who I otherwise, like, wouldn't be attracted to necessarily, because I always try to remind myself, like, there's an audience for this somewhere, and I would like to understand like what is attractive about it. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there who see, like, whether it's not just bikes or Alan Fisher on YouTube, or they see like Strong Towns with Chuck Marone or or um Jeff Speck or these other like public figures, right? They, they see them presenting a certain style and they think like, oh, I can't do that. Like I'm not, I'm not an expert. I didn't go to school for urban planning or I, I don't have, a, I've never written a book or I, I don't know much about this thing. They think like, I, I can't do it because I'm not like them. But I think like, it's, it's corny, but I mean, really, if more people figured out like where their strengths are, like where their passions are and where they can really um, communicate strongly, like everybody's passionate about something, right? Even if it's something stupid, like some people are, you know, passionate about like a random video game or, you know, random music or something where it's like, this is like this one artist, like we've got, you got like, you know, you got Doja Cat stands, you've got anime stands, you got people who are obsessed with every which thing. And I think if somebody's obsessed with a topic to the point where like, it's taking up a lot of mental space and, and hobbyism for them, and they're, they're thinking about, you know, contributing to the movement or contributing to the discourse in some way, I mean, you just got to figure out like, where, where are your strengths at? Can you write? Can you get in front of a camera, you know, and if you can't do either of those things, is it worth trying? Because like I like I said, I've never grant, granted I've been speaking in some capacity for a long time. It's not like I just woke up one day and jumped on TikTok, but I wasn't like, you know, a TikTok expert. Like I just kind of jumped in, like started trying stuff out and seeing seeing what worked. So I think, you know, not not everybody can be uh, Joe Rogan, right? Like not everybody can be the biggest podcaster or the biggest YouTuber or the biggest songwriter in the world. But, you know, if you have a, a strength that, that you had a passion about something, I think just pursue it. Even if you've got 10 people listening or 100 people listening, you, you don't got to be um, some big content creator. Like, I think uh, it's it's kind of one of the things I've, I've hated over the years about the, um, the anti-podcaster meme. And I'm not saying this just because you have a podcast, because um, I, I, too, used to do a podcast. But and I'm all about, you know, like making fun of myself and making fun of people who do whatever. Like, that's fine. But I think it became a meme to the to the point where like people were genuinely being like, oh, great, like another podcast. Who needs more podcasts? Right. But it's like that's such a bad attitude. Like like we're all in the world participating and contributing what we have. And I think if somebody has a microphone and something interesting to say and they want to get themselves out there, like that's cool. We should be encouraging that, you know. So I think. I don't know. Like, like I, I, there's so much space and content and the internet. None of it's a zero sum game. Like there's, 
ways that we can all, you know, chip in and win our little our little pieces of the pie. And I think, you know, more people should be encouraged if if they're passionate about it to to participate, even if they might not be the next uh, big thing or whatever. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Nathan. Let's leave it there. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I appreciate um appreciate you having me. And uh, if you need anything else, just uh, hit me up. Okay. Cool. All right. See you, man. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.